No, Jeroboam and Rehoboam aren't two cute names of biblical twins separated at birth. They were kings of the competing kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and they were both wicked. In fact, the entire history of the Israelites until they're carried away captive is one of wickedness, punctuated only briefly by four righteous kings in a period of almost three and a half centuries. What difference did these four righteous rulers make? That's the subject of Lesson 27, The Influence of Wicked and Righteous Rulers. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. As always, you may email the program at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And we're grateful to be back with you discussing uh, the continuation, really, of the story of Solomon. And I see it that way, although most people in, in, our, in our day and age, we kind of see the history of Israel separated into two periods. There's Saul, David, and Solomon. And then there's this sharp dividing line. And then there's the divided kingdom. And although that is valid from our perspective, I imagine the people living at the time didn't see it that way. They saw it much as they lived through their history much as we lived through ours, which is one day after another. And so to them, there were a succession of kings, the first three of which were Saul, David, and Solomon. And then depending on where you lived, there were more. But, and we, the names Saul, David, and Solomon are well known to us today, and not so much Rehoboam and those that followed. So we, we kind of think because the kings were famous that the people would have had this feeling at the time that they were passing into a different era of history. And I don't, I don't believe that it actually occurred like that. And the, the reason I bring this up is as we discuss the influence of wicked and righteous rulers, I'm going to include Saul, David, and Solomon on the list. And that's not what you'll get in your lesson, but they very much should be considered on the spectrum that we're going to establish. So... First of all, let's talk about uh, who Jeroboam and Rehoboam are. Now, we last time we talked about the reign of Solomon and how he was the most glorious of all the kings in the history of Israel. And uh, kind of like the Emperor Trajan, the Roman Emperor, the kingdom of Israel reached its largest extent during Solomon's reign. That meant that he was the most powerful and he had a, he had a reign of peace. Because he was so powerful and because there was external peace, no one really dared to challenge Solomon's rule from inside while he was alive. Now that became less true towards the end of his reign. In fact, Jeroboam was one of uh, Solomon's military leaders and, and administrators that began to challenge him, especially once he, he was guaranteed by a prophet that he would take over 10 of the tribes of Solomon's kingdom. He didn't know the timing of that. Uh, and so he began to challenge Solomon's rule, and Solomon sought his life, and so he was forced to flee to Egypt. But uh, there were, so towards the end of Solomon's life, there were a few minor insurrections, you might say, or minor uh, rebellions or disloyalties. But for the most part, everyone feared Solomon, and they knew he was also super wise, and so if they were to challenge him, he could probably outthink them. And so everyone remained quiescent. Well, here we are at the, at the end of Solomon's life, the beginning of Rehoboam's reign. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And 
everyone is let's let's explain the uh, let me explain the economic burden that was placed on on Israel, the kingdom of Israel, during the reign of Solomon. First of all, uh, he spent up all this money that David has spent had spent his whole life amassing. Secondly, he spent he taxed the people onerously to to understand how burdensome their taxes were. Uh, you need to understand the the concept of corvée labor, which is C-O-R-V-E-E. And what that means is it's almost like a military draft that we have today. The government would say, you have to work this amount of time on behalf of the king, and you don't get paid for it. Therefore, it's similar to slave labor, except that it's of shorter duration. And Solomon actually impressed the entire country into corvée labor for one month out of three. So imagine that, and uh, in our to put it into a modern perspective, you may remember celebrations around April, the middle of April sometime, Tax Liberty Day, meaning if you do the math and you figure out how much money you paid in taxes, the average person around, coincidentally, around tax uh, the tax due date of April 15th is generally the time when you have been working for the government since January 1st, and from, and from that point on, you're free. So interestingly enough, we actually today uh, live in a state of corvée labor, which is that we we labor almost one month out of every three for the government. Now the difference is we have, uh, first of all, we have a progressive type of taxation, which which means that not everyone, not the the poorest of the poor, don't have to. Uh, shoulder that burden, and so that it falls upon those who are more easily able to bear it. Secondly, um, we have we pay it in money rather than in our time, and so we feel it less directly. But this was the status under. So can can you imagine that you are forced to stop doing what you're doing one month out of every three and go harvest cedars, cedar trees, and and drag them back to Jerusalem, or uh, or go to Israel and labor at the temple or build Solomon's house. You have to leave your own house and all the projects that need to get done there, and you have to go build Solomon's house. And you look at his house and you think, this house is the size of, uh, you know, what what we would think of as like a high school or, um, you know, a large government building. I mean, there's nothing, very few houses approach the size of Solomon's house. And so you would you would start to get a feel for, the inequality that existed. And this caused a lot of resentments, but they didn't come to light during the reign of Solomon. So Rehoboam takes over, and the people, his administrators, they want to get a feel. And the the elders of the church and the elders of the people and the tribal leaders, they want to get a feel for how Rehoboam is going to rule. And they say, okay, uh, Rehoboam, by the way, we're going to go ahead and recommend that you reduce the burdens that your father has put on us. And they were saying it rather politely, but underneath was a re- were really, really strong feelings. And uh, Rehoboam, so he's, he didn't like, and these were all older people telling him this, he didn't like what they were telling him. They're saying, uh, yeah, it's a really good idea for you to lower taxes and live a little more humbly. Let's, li- let's as a kingdom, live within our means, which Solomon, as wise as he was, was certainly not doing. In fact, Solomon mortgaged 40 cities 
around the area of Galilee, and this uh, this is something that's not generally known, to Tyre. So Hiram was the king of Tyre, and he and he sold him or or lent him or mortgaged to him forty of the cities around around the area of Galilee in order to get the gold that he needed to continue his construction projects and and other military, just build up his standing army and increase his wealth and probably support his large, his 1,000 wives and concubines for that matter. So we we don't really think of uh, as, you know, in the United States, and if you're listening in another country, I'm sure your country doesn't consider this either, selling off our territory to a neighboring country in order to um, have them buy our treasury bonds. That's just not even something that enters into our thoughts. But Solomon was willing to do that. It's extremely unwise. Not only unwise financially, but unwise militarily. And in, in any case, back to the subject. So the, the elders of, the, of Israel were telling Rehoboam, look, we're in bad shape and we need you to reduce the burdens. Rehoboam doesn't like that. His pride gets to him and he, and he sees how his father lived. And so he finds some people to tell him something else. And it just so happens that these were all of the people his age. They were younger and perhaps even his friends. And they tell him, no, why would you do that? Let's let's increase the burdens. And so he goes back to the elders and he says, no, where, where my father chastised you with whips, I will chastise you with scorpions, And uh, which is a kind of, you might even think of the kind of whip that Christ was scourged with, with a, with a biting whip. In other words, as ba- and there's a there's a crude uh, sexual metaphor. My my little finger will will be the size of my father's loins. Meaning, um, if he was if he was wealthy and and had luxury, I'm gonna have tons more. And uh, in fact, the name Rehoboam means the people are made are the people are enlarged. And uh, as I was researching the names, it was interesting because I, I, I don't know whether this is true. There's, there, there's not a whole lot of evidence for it, but there's not a whole lot of evidence against it. So it's, it's just an interesting idea. But the, the theory has been proposed that the kings of Israel were not, did not have the names that we know them by from birth. For example, David means beloved. Solomon means peaceful. And we know in the scriptures and from the other histories we have from that time that no one else had those names. There are a couple, in the case of Solomon, there are a couple of other kings that had the name of Peaceful. And But we, the only place we, dis, we discover the name of David is in a Semitic deity. And David means beloved. So David wasn't a common given name. So um, in any case, the, the theory is proposed that perhaps David was his what's called a regnal name, a title that he takes on when he assumes the throne. And this is the common practice in modern times. And to to relate it to today, you might think of what happens when a pope, when a cardinal becomes pope, they choose their papal name and it could be totally different. Right? So Benedict Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, they they didn't have those names until they were chosen as Pope. And nobody really, unless you were unless you we're familiar with them before they, uh, while they were cardinals, before they assumed the papacy, you wouldn't even remember their, their names. So, uh, and, and I believe uh, 
Pope Benedict was Cardinal Ratzinger, and he was from, and, and, and then he reassumed that name when he abdicated the papacy. Well, the, the idea is that maybe the ancient Israelite kings did the same thing. And the, the reason I bring that up is, if that's the case, um, to me, there was an astonishing modern parallel with what's going on as the kingdom of Israel divides with what's going on today. So we have a, a very similar, and I, I don't want to make any political statements, but I don't think it's a political statement to say that in the U.S. we have today a controversial, uh, we have a controversial head of government. And there's somebody who makes statements that a lot of people take to mean that he is going to uh, do things that they don't like. So this is this is what Rehoboam did. You can now you can start to put Rehoboam in better context. Rehoboam assumes office or assumes the throne, and immediately starts to say things that make people say, "What he's going to do? What Are, is he crazy?" And uh, and so if this is an if, but if Rehoboam is a regnal name, then then he assumed this name as he as he assumes the throne. And he says, the people will be enlarged. Now this, this, uh, and, and, and so that's the, that's the impression he wants to give to everyone. I am Rehoboam. I'm going to enlarge you now. But what he's saying is the, the country in general will be enlarged. And what everybody would have understood from that was that the people at the top would be enlarged. And in fact, it's the same word as to make fat. And so Jeroboam, into this, into this situation, Jeroboam returns from Egypt. And um, we'll talk a little bit about where he came from in a few minutes. But uh, Jeroboam returns from Egypt, and he's a member of an, the tribe of Ephraim. And so um, the, and David, as you'll recall, is from the tribe of Judah. And God promised David that there would never fail him an heir on the throne of Judah. In other words, Judah was destined to rule every other tribe forever because that's what God said. He, you, will, you will have somebody on that throne for your, his kingdom, your son's kingdom, and son, I put son in quotes, your son's kingdom shall endure forever. And every other tribe felt a little bit underrepresented after that point, and especially Ephraim, which was the most prosperous of the tribes. And so along comes Jeroboam. And if Jeroboam, again, if it, that is a regnal name, it seems like a, the reason I, the reason I even came up with this theory is because it seems like a, uh, a big coincidence that the two kings that are opposing each other have such similar names. And in fact, I, the reason I led the show in the way I did is I always assumed growing up, that they were related somehow, and they, their names, the fact that their names are so similar was on purpose. Well, maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't from birth. So Jeroboam comes back, and the, the A-M at the end of their names, the O-A-M, is actually people. And so Rehoboam has the name, the people shall be enlarged. And Jeroboam comes back, and he chooses the name Jeroboam, if, if, it, if it so be that he did, in fact, choose his name. Jeroboam means the people shall be made numerous or multiplied. So you can almost see the interplay of two ideas. One is our country will be made great 
but everyone would have understood that to be power is going to continue to concentrate at the top. And Jeroboam comes back and says, I'm of the people. I'm going to, I'm going to multiply the people. In other words, you will keep more of what you make. And you got to understand what these young men were uh, advising Rehoboam to do was to transfer wealth. And that's, that's the economic term for what happens whenever labor is expropriated, for example, when, when people are forced into labor or when they are taxed heavily, and then, and then it is distributed in a non-representative way, meaning that the, some of the people who, um, were ta- who paid more taxes receive fewer benefits. So then there, then there exists what's called a wealth transfer. And what these young men wanted was for people who are bearing more of the tax burden and the labor burden, namely the richer people, which is almost exclusively in any country, the older people, the people who have had more time to accumulate wealth and substance. Yeah, let's keep taxing the people, they said. Of course, let's increase the tax burdens because to them the idea sounded really good of transferring wealth. The problem is what happens when you make such a statement is you undercut the idea that any anybody owns anything. And you have undermined the, the, the very motivation that gets people to get up and go to work in the morning, which is that they can work for themselves. And so this was hugely unpopular. And you can imagine, so it's almost like the names Jeroboam and Rehoboam are campaign slogans. And Rehoboam is saying, I'm going to enlarge the people. And Jeroboam is saying, no, what you're going to do is create fat cats at the top. I'm going to return the power to the people. And it works. So 10 of the tribes split away from the kingdom of Israel. And from that time forward, the kingdom of Israel includes the northern 10 tribes. And in fact, it it includes 10 and a half tribes because Benjamin is split down the two kingdoms. And half of Benjamin goes with the kingdom of Judah. From that time, it's known as the kingdom of Judah. The The advantage that they had was Judah was centered, was the capital was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the temple was. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it's where a lot of the wealth had accumulated over the reign of David and Solomon. So, Jeroboam, and now now let's get back to what I promised earlier. Where does Jeroboam come from? Well, at, at some point when Solomon, when it became, at the, and you can read about this in the end of uh, last last time, last week's lesson, at some point, Solomon loses his faithfulness, and he begins to not only worship Ashtoreth and uh, and in the high places and in the groves as the as the worship places of of the idolatrous religion surrounding Israel are known, but he also began to worship Milcom or Moloch, which we discussed as the the curse of the Ammonites, the, the, the this terrible God of, of human sacrifice and child sacrifice. And when, when Solomon reached this moral depth, then God sent the prophet, the prophet Ahijah came to Jeroboam and Jeroboam is leaving Jerusalem and this prophet comes to him and strips off his outer garment and tears it in 12 pieces and says, here are 10 pieces that you get to keep and two pieces. Um, and there's some, there's some discrepancy between translations here, but the, the upshot is that um, in the King James Version, it says one, one tribe will remain to 
Rehoboam and the Septuagint actually says two tribes, but obviously it's sort of halfway in between. It's one and a half. So uh, the point is he he divides his garment as a symbol and he promises Jeroboam that he'll receive the kingdom. And all of these other nations are gaining courage and they're also... um, around the end of the life of Solomon, they're also becoming more and more resentful because Solomon has made them tributaries as well. And so he's taxing them very heavily. And everyone hates the taxation of Solomon. And so it doesn't take much for Jeroboam to come back and break the loyalty of all 10 of the northern tribes and half of Benjamin. And there are actually border disputes that are quite bitterly fought over for the next few generations. But uh, for the most part, they split into two kingdoms. Now, Jeroboam has a problem, and Jeroboam, but he has a solution. So his problem is the temple is in Judah, and he's worried. Maybe the, pe- maybe the loyalty of my people will return to the kingdom of Judah, especially if they obey the commandments, and three times a year they present themselves in front of the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. And then they see that there's more glory, there are more glorious things there. The Wow, this temple that we all labor to create is there, and they're going to see the uh, Rehoboam living in this magnificent palace of Solomon that we all contributed to the creation of, and they're going to think, why aren't we subject to this guy rather than to Jeroboam? Well, God promised when, when he sent the prophet Ahijah to talk to Jeroboam, God promised him something very similar to what he promised David. Uh, He didn't say the words, you will have someone on the throne forever. But he said, as long as you're faithful, I will protect your kingdom. And this is actually quite a bit of irony because the, the first thing that Jeroboam does, he tries to protect his kingdom by being unfaithful. And we're going to draw some parallels between the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the wicked King Noah that we read about in the Book of Mormon. So what... uh, and, and the only real difference is that Israel was surrounded by these uh, idolatrous nations and peoples that were, in some cases, intermixed, but in every case, neighboring them. And so they had all kinds of people nearby that they could go to for advice on how to become pagans and, and uh, idolaters. And it was a popular and common thing for an Israelite to do if they apostatized from Judaism, or even just felt lazy, was to go worship an idol. And they they didn't even see it as a contradiction that they would worship Yahweh on, on the Sabbath or whenever it was convenient, and then also burn incense in the high places and worship in the groves. And uh, we've, I've talked a little bit about what that entailed. But all of it was against the strictly against the commandments of Yahweh. And they didn't that didn't bother them. And so what did what did Jeroboam do? But he immediately put two competing temples. Uh, and he in, one was in Bethel, which was where the temple, where the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant had actually resided for some time. And one in Dan, which was the, the, the far northern tip of Israel. And so he gave it, he made it easier for people to get to the places of worship. And then he instituted rival festivals. And so instead of going to Jerusalem at the temple on the Day of Atonement and participating in that uh, festival that God had ordained that, that would expiate the sin once a year of Israel collectively, instead of doing that, 
and the and the cult the temples that Jeroboam created were idolatrous temples and it was the same bull cult that Aaron created the golden calf to serve and some people believe that on the surface it was actually uh, it gave lip service to worshiping Yahweh or Jehovah that it was just it was it was kind of said well this is a symbol of God Nevertheless, God, God had specifically said, don't create a graven image and worship that instead of me. Graven images are dead things. They're a creation of your hands. But I am actually the powerful God who created you. Instead, but they didn't listen to that. They they started worshiping at these, and they, they had no problem with it. I, I shouldn't say no problem, but it, we don't have a record of a lot of Israelites having a problem with Jeroboam taking them and apostatizing them on their behalf wholesale and taking the whole nation into iniquity. And this happened about 930 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel lasted 200 years roughly. And during that time, they didn't have a single king that was faithful to to Yahweh. Not one. And at the end of that time, they were conquered by the Assyrians. And, And so here... And, and we'll talk about the Assyrians. I think I'll, I'll save that for when we discuss Jonah. But uh, the Assyrians were, the Jews have been persecuted by some pretty awful nations. And if you know your 20th century history, then obviously the Nazis were the worst that you can think of. Well, the Assyrians were way worse than that. And they were way worse. Not The only difference, the only thing that made the Assyrians better is they didn't single out Jews for particular persecution. But it didn't matter because their persecution towards everyone was way worse than anything the Nazis did. And we'll discuss, uh, when we get to that lesson, we'll discuss some of the things that the Assyrians did. But in order to protect his kingdom, in order to solidify his power, Jeroboam instituted these alternate forms of worship. And he turned his back on the very promise that had been given him by God, which was, If you will remain faithful to me, I will protect your power. I will sustain you as as a leader and as a ruler. And not only you, but your children after you, your line. And he he made a similar promise to what he made to David. Well, uh, to review that, I actually went back and read what, what we call the Davidic covenant. And we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, this is when, at the time when David inquires of the prophet Nathan, hey, can I build a temple for God rather than having him, uh, having the Ark of the Covenant and the Shekinah, which is the Israel considered that God's presence resided particularly in the temple. And this idea of God being present there was called Shekinah. And they David wanted that presence in Jerusalem, in his capital. And so he wanted to build a permanent place and Nathan at first said yes, and then he came back later and said, well, actually, God says no, but your son can do it. And right around that time, when uh, when Nathan says, well, you, so your son will be able to build this house unto me, but I will establish your house. And so here we play a little bit with the word house, and let's talk about what the Davidic covenant is and what it means to have a house. And this is very relevant to our lesson today. So even though we're going back to the time of David, the promise to David was that your house shall never never fail. And um, 
it's it's pretty familiar, I think, to most people, the idea that a house is your dynasty, um, especially among noble families or among special or royalty. Your your house, the house of the of the Tudor kings of England, for example, is as long as as long as the descendant of the original king is still on the throne, then the house has withstood all enemies. So that's that's how David probably would have understood this. So the word house actually means people. I will build you a house. You won't build me a house. I will build you a house. Meaning I will preserve the people that descend from you and they will rule over Israel. And one particular, and we've made much of this, one particular fulfillment of this prophecy is Christ himself. So a very particular thing that that Nathan was prophesying to David was this, the Messiah will come from your lineage. And this was important to everyone in ancient Israel. This is why it was such a particular curse. If a woman was barren, she was like thinking to herself, my child, the, at, at some point, my child might have a child and that child might have a child. And eventually one of those children, grandchildren will be the Messiah, the one who is going to redeem Israel. So it was considered a great blessing and something much to be desired to have the Messiah come from your lineage. And this was a promise extended to various people. We've talked about several of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ruth, and David, and Solomon. And uh, so here I'll read a little bit of the, this is called the Davidic Covenant. We're in 2 Samuel 7. When thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. And thy seed could be your son, but it could also be a distant descendant. Thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this this covenant had one fulfillment in Solomon. He built a house, physical house, for Yahweh. But God didn't establish Solomon's kingdom forever, but he did establish it. In fact, Solomon was unfaithful, and God, in order to keep his covenant, he did not overthrow Solomon until the end of his life. So that's one fulfillment of this, of this covenant. In verse 14, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. This is obviously talking about Jesus Christ. Even though it's figuratively, it's literally talking about Christ and figuratively talking about Solomon. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And I've been thinking a lot about what it means. Why was it so important and why is it so important? And and we read about this in the Book of Mormon as well. Why is it so important what happens to someone's seed? And I, I think I, I just barely put my finger on this question that I've had pretty much my whole life, which is the, the Nephites and the Lamanites are fighting, right? And the Nephites see that they're going to be completely wiped out. Or the Lamanites are obviously all going into apostasy. And then the prophets promise something that I always wondered, why is that a comforting promise? Which is, one day... You know, there's the, the seed of thy brethren will be brought to the knowledge of the truth. One day, your seed will, 
the seed of Laman will be converted to the truth. One one day, Nephites, your you know the a remnant of thy seed shall be a light unto the Gentiles. And this also happens in Old Testament times. And the reason I, I mention it in the Book of Mormon is maybe it'll be more familiar to you that this promise has been extended to so many people throughout the the history of the scriptures that there has to be some greater meaning to it. And I've, I've thought a lot about why it was so important to them that their seed would be righteous or that their seed would be favored of God, their seed would be somehow blessed and would have the, either the Messiah come through that line. And this is a central part of the Abrahamic covenant, which we all aspire to. We all aspire to those blessings. And in our seed shall the shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. In fact, the blessings of posterity are very close to the hearts of Latter-day Saints, and they're found in the temple. And why is that? And I don't, I, I don't profess to know the answer, but uh, one answer that I came up with was perhaps, and and this is something I've referred to before a few a few weeks ago, but perhaps as we work on what they call breaking the cycle of generations, and if you know anyone who's ever been abused, you'll know what I'm talking about. A lot of times when uh, the these cycles of generations can be good or bad, they can be they can but but quite often they're cycles of wickedness. So so one father abuses his children, and those children will often grow up and think this is how love is shown, this is discipline, or they will think I'm I was worthless as a kid and I want to keep my child from being worthless. There are a lot of theories as to why this this behavior perpetuates itself. But but you may know someone, or you may know uh, or you definitely know of someone who has broken that cycle where they were abused, treated horribly, or maybe maybe not by a parent, but by someone who was close to the family, or maybe they just had an um, an episode of abuse that may have been awful. And these things often get burst to cycles. And yet every so often will come along someone who can break that cycle of generations. And I I can't quite say whether this is true. I can't quite even put my finger on what I'm trying to say, except to say that I believe there's some significance when we break a cycle for our ancestors. I believe it has some spiritual consequence. There is some outcome for them in our being righteous. And I'm not saying that this is what the Israelites would have had in mind when they desired that their seed would hear the, or the Nephites when they desired that they would one day receive the gospel, but maybe it was. But I believe there are spiritual implications, let's put it that way, for our ancestors and for those who came before us. And the reason is this, if you commit a sin and it affects other people, and those, and let's say those ripples don't go anywhere. That sin, that sin affects people and then they all recover from the effects of your sin. Then in the eternities, your, your consequences, your repentance is that much easier to bear. But let's say instead you commit a sin and the, and the ripples of that sin, the, the implications of it, the consequences of it continue to affect people negatively for generations to come. Don't you think it would be a huge relief to you when someone is able to break that cycle and 
and all of a sudden those ripples instead of continuing to ripple along the water they hit the side of the pool and stop and instead of reflecting back in they're dampened and, and eventually they just stop and you in your eternal state in the spirit world whatever your state is you're looking at that and you're thinking finally finally now i can begin to make amends in whatever way that means i don't know exactly what that looks like for a spirit but i do believe it exists i believe that um and, and we know that spirits are taught the truth and spirits are encouraged to repent and to receive the ordinances of the gospel by proxy and why shouldn't that repentance include hoping that the ripples of their negative acts, the, the lasting consequences, would be done away with. And, therefore, what a desirable thing it would be that the ripples of your life, and, and your ripples after you die, are most, most commonly and most dependably and most uh, long-lastingly felt by your direct descendants. Wouldn't that be amazing? If the ripple, if part of the ripples of your life would be that the Messiah would come and that all mankind would be saved, even though obviously you didn't perform the atonement, but you had some small part, however small it might be, in bringing the Messiah through his mother into existence. Or even if you were one of the, the ancestors of, of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, that you had some influence you had some ripple that touched somebody who had strong influence over Jesus. And uh, even though the Jews didn't recognize Jesus, the Jews at the time of Jesus did not recognize him as the Messiah during his life, or many of them did not. Um, in the spirit world, I imagine many of them are saying, wow, I, and in spite of all the evil that I did in my life, I was able to do one small thing, which was have this child that eventually had a child who gave birth to the, the, to the Messiah. And so this tiniest little ripple that ended up way in the corner of the pond did something that was so huge, had infinite value. And that I, I believe this is a question worth considering as we go throughout our lives. Because if it's true, it means that there are people depending on us making good choices every day that we can't see, who, no, who are perhaps no longer alive. Maybe we have ancestors that are only three or four generations back who are thinking, you know, I accepted the gospel in some other country. Or maybe you are a, uh, a recent convert to the church and you, are, you have ancestors who are thinking, I raised my children the best I could. And I, you know, when I, before I was born or shortly after I arrived here in the spirit world, I was given the promise that one of my descendants would receive the gospel and do the work for me or begin to save my other descendants or begin somehow to mitigate these negative ripples and to accentuate the positive ripples that I have created in my life. And therefore, the choices that we make can have this idea of God creating a house and protecting our seed, to me introduces the question of can our actions, can our choices have eternal consequences over the, over the world both seen and unseen and over several generations to come? And the answer is probably it can in ways that we, that we don't, that we couldn't possibly suspect. So all the negative choices we have, we, we can pray that God will somehow dampen those, mitigate them, 
lessen, lessen the effect. And all the positive choices we make, we can pray that God will amplify them and send them out uh, greatly increased. And this is, this is what the Davidic covenant is, is God is saying, I'm going to amplify your good choices and I'm going to try to dampen your bad choices. And he gives this covenant to Solomon. He renews it with him. And uh, one, more, one more thing about this, ho- this idea of a house. I'm going to establish your house and your son is going to build my house. So in the case of David, a house was people. But in the case of God, a house was a temple. And in other words, as long as your people are close to my temple, then I will build you a house. When your people respect my house, then my person, my son, will respect your people. I will build you a house to the extent that you respect my house. And that's the exact opposite of what happened with Jeroboam. Instead of encouraging all of his subjects to obey the commandments and to travel as they had been commanded three times a year down, and, you know, if they couldn't make every festival, it wasn't the end of the world, but if they could have been relatively faithful in keeping these these festivals, these times of remembrance of God, and they were, they sort of took the place of literacy. People couldn't study the scriptures. And we'll study later when we talk about Ezra. That was the first time after the Jews returned from their captivity in Babylon, when, they, when the study of scriptures among the general population became a thing. And so when could they learn about God? Never, unless they went to these festivals. That was the reason for them to exist. Of course they forgot God. Of course they were, it, they were easy to draw away into these idolatrous traditions. It's because they didn't have scriptures of their own. What a precious blessing that is. And so uh, not only did Jeroboam not respect that, but he stood in the way of it. He became a stumbling block for it. And he said, instead of instead of keeping those festivals and honoring God and honoring Yahweh, let's keep my festivals. And as I mentioned about uh, King Noah when we talked about him a few weeks ago, he had to set up a rival religion. And it ta- the first thing that King Noah did is he had to replace all the priests because he needed somebody who would say, yes, what Noah's doing is right, instead of no, what Noah's doing is wrong. And in order to get those pre in order to get these crooked priests to praise him, he had to support them in iniquity as well. And the difference between Noah and Jeroboam is not much. It's just that Jeroboam had these surrounding cultures of idolatry to turn to, to control his people. And this is evidence to us, or it should be evidence, that idolatry wasn't all that attractive in and of itself. It actually was a method of control used by rulers to make their people do what they wanted them to do and to cement their power. It was a way to say, you do iniquity if you give me power. And King Noah found a way to do that without idolatrous nations surrounding them. But the, re- the end result was the same. It was an apostate and corrupt church. And when the church is apostate, when the church is corrupt, I shouldn't say when the church is apostate. When the church is corrupt, then the prophets that are actually called from God are the apostates. And so that's the, that's the situation we run into when, when um, Abinadi appears. And Elijah is the, 
is the prime example of this in the northern kingdom of Israel. You've all heard of the prophet Elijah, and we'll spend some time on him later. But he was one of the spectacular prophets of, north, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he came to the, to the kings of Israel and testified to them boldly and very dramatically about their wickedness. But it didn't matter. None of the kings repented. I shouldn't say it didn't matter. It, it didn't have the result of the kings repenting and all the people repenting and returning to the worship of Jehovah. They remained wick in their wickedness. And uh, in the case of Abinadi, only one person was converted, and he was and he was forced to flee, as as was the case in in many of the people who desired to be righteous. Right? When you're a prophet, you're forced to be an apostate. And when the prophets are apostates, think about this for a minute. We were the only reason that our time is different is because we were promised that the gospel would never again be taken from the earth. But if we lived in any other time, in any other dispensation, we would not be sure. Is our church going to be corrupted one day? Are the priests themselves going to be the ones who are helping the rulers remain in power by teaching wickedness? And if that's the case, then you have to be not only worrying about what you're doing, but worrying about what your ecclesiastical leaders are doing. Are they teaching me true things? And you have to know the truth. What does that say? What happens to the keys of the priesthood during that time? This is one of the reasons why Moses was unable to preserve the, the Melchizedek priesthood for the Israelites. They had to only have the Aaronic priesthood. So there were, there were very few keys, and the keys they had were simply to administer the, number one, ordain more priests, and then administer the few things that were to do in the temple and make sacrifices. They didn't have the greater priesthood. Because keys cannot be preserved when the church is corrupt. And keys are so important to our salvation. So, in the, in the entire history of the northern kingdom of Israel, spanned over 200 years, not a single righteous ruler. And every prophet, therefore, every prophet that existed in the northern kingdom was, a, was somebody who was an apostate and living like Elijah, we have stories of Elijah being fed by ravens because every hand was against him. He had to live in the wilderness. And where would he get food? Is he going to go farm? If he farms somewhere, they can find him. He either has to go hunt or um, live in the wilderness and, and have God take care of him. He was fed by ravens. And who knows where Abinadi went? He was gone for the space of two years. He came and prophesied once and they chased him and away and he, he went and he probably lived in the wilderness. And that's what happens to prophets in this sort of a situation. Lehi, ejected from Jerusalem. This is several hundred years later, but a similar, a similar situation. So um, now, as opposed to the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah lasted longer, and they had four kings that could be called righteous. Only four out of a total of 20. And the first one is Rehoboam's great-grandson, Jehoshaphat. But, uh, and we'll talk about the later ones. So Asa, A-S-A, and Jehoshaphat came uh, just a few generations later, and then almost towards the end of the history of, uh, of, of Judah as a, an independent state, come two more faithful kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. But they're the subject of a later lesson. So, 
the the but the the principles are very similar. What happens is they almost come to themselves. It's like their entire nation has been asleep. And they and as we we discussed last time in the um in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are commandments in that chapter that are specific to kings. If you are the king of Israel, one day, you know, this this crazy prophecy by Moses, one day there might be kings and if the people ever say, oh, we want to be like other nations and have a king, well then, if they do that, here's what you have to do if you're the king. And one of the things was you have to read the scriptures. You have to follow the commandments. You can't multiply yourself in gold or in wives or in horses. And so that's an interesting passage to read. In And uh, in the, in the culmination of that for Solomon was the, the wives verse in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 17. So I, I encourage you to go read that. It's interesting. But uh, the the kings had these commandments, and occasionally one of them would discover it. And they would say, we've got to teach the people this. And so they would send out the Levites, whose job it was to educate the people in the laws. And they, and they taught from a book which may or may not refer to the Torah. Um, or, or, or it might be one of the so-called lost books of the Bible. And there are several books um, that are referred to especially in the last few, um, in the material for the last few lessons we've covered, the book, the book of the law of the Lord. So that's the book that they went around teaching. There's also a book referred to the book of the Acts of Solomon and the book of Nathan the prophet. We don't have those in our, in our modern Bible. But they would go around teaching from the book of the law of the Lord, which we can presume is similar to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, and they would greatly changed their whole society. The first thing they would do is, is what's called breaking down the groves and, and tearing away the high places. They would stamp out the practice of idolatry. This was their number one priority whenever there was a righteous king. Stamp out idolatry. And as soon as that would happen, um, well, let, let's, let's put it another way. There was uh, the Syrians. Now, Assyrians we talked about earlier. And it's kind of like the difference between moral and amoral. If you're, if you're amoral, you're not moral. And if you're a Syrian, you're not Syrian. They, that's a little joke. Uh, there's, they don't have a similar etymology, but um, keep, a, keep a distinction in your mind between Syria, which is a nation nearby, and it's, it, there's a nation existing today with the same name, and then the empire of Assyria, which is totally different. So the Syrians were attacking the southern kingdom in Jehoshaphat's time, the southern kingdom of Israel. And he, instead of uh, doing what Jeroboam did, which is counting on his own strength, he prompted the people and he encouraged the people to pray to God for deliverance. And he tried to instill in them a sense of righteousness and whip them up into obedience rather than to cement his own power. He didn't, he didn't, he did it because he knew that he was incapable through his own power of preserving his kingdom. He was humble enough to see that. And what, what happened? The people of Israel were given the promise, I will fight your battles. This is not your battle, but mine. Because you've been obedient, now this problem that was unresolvable by you, I have now made it my problem. And what happened? The, the Syrians ended up having another squabble along the way, and the, 
the instead of instead of raising an army, Jehoshaphat had so much faith that he hired minstrels to sing, and there was no army. Now, you could look at this and say, well, the Syrians came down, they found nobody to resist them, and they thought these guys aren't a threat. Uh, what are we even doing here? I mean, uh, this is going to be a walk in the park, and then something else more important came up, and they went to fight someone else. That's one way of looking at it. But the fact that God promised it before it happens makes it hard to deny that his hand was in it. God said, I'm going to fight this battle for you. And the people of Israel had faith. And when a time came to defend themselves, they didn't have to. What an amazing lesson for our lives. How many times do we do what Jeroboam did, which is, um, okay, God has made me this promise. God has made me a promise that he will sustain me if I remain faithful. And if I help those around me remain faithful, but I want to sustain myself. And so I'm going to worship something other than God. And I'm going to not only disrespect the worship of God, but I'm going to put stumbling blocks in the path of that worship in order to sustain myself. And then God has to withdraw his protecting hand from us until the pain becomes such that we're willing to look, take another look at our behavior. This is, this is the reason why the old, I love the Old Testament, is because you cannot escape. The, the, the nation of Israel is a type of our spiritual journey. You cannot escape it. Every time you read about their history, you have to see your own, your own walk with God, your own path of obedience and apostasy. If you can't see that, then you then you what you're doing is you're reading the Bible as a bumper sticker. You're you you get to the to the book in Proverbs and you see trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, and you think, what a great quote. And you're reading the Bible as a selection of quotes, and then you're reading, ah oh, man, I just don't get what's going on. These kings of Israel, ah, what what's the deal with that guy? And if you don't take a step back and look at the larger picture and see a symbol and see Israel as a symbol of your own spiritual journey, then you're missing the entire point. But if you do see it, wow, it's it's so powerful and so transcendent. And this is why the Bible has the the specifically the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the Bible has kept the Jews identity distinct through thousands of years of persecution. It's because it's such a powerful symbol of their own personal journey. And every Jew that reads the Bible is going to say, and they understand it so much better than we do, they're willing to get into the Old Testament and understand these symbols and how the, or or at least hopefully they are. In the best case, they would be. They're willing to see themselves in not only the conduct of ancient people, but of ancient civilizations. They're able to extrapolate that. I wanted to bring up... um, on a, not much of a digression, but a slight side note. So something I forgot to mention last week, but I think it applies to this lesson as well. Elder Bednar in April 2018 gave a talk about meekness. And uh, I'm going to read a paragraph from that talk. And it, and it applies specifically to Solomon, but I think it applies to all the kings of, of Israel and Judah. And basically he's So when we think of meekness, we think of the same idea 
as humility. We think, what's the difference between meekness and humility? I don't know. And Elder Bednar put it this way. This is a quote. Whereas humility generally denotes dependence upon God and the constant need for his guidance and support, a distinguishing characteristic of meekness is a particular spiritual receptivity to learning both from the Holy Ghost and from people who may seem less capable, experienced, or educated, who may not hold important positions, or who otherwise may not appear to have much to contribute. And he gives an example from the Old Testament. Recall how Naaman, captain of the king's army in Syria, we're going to discuss this story in a few weeks, overcame his pride and meekly accepted the advice of his servants to obey Elisha the prophet and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Meekness is the principal protection from the prideful blindness that often arises from prominence, position, power, wealth, and adulation. So all of those things, prominence, position, power, wealth, and adulation, all those things were enjoyed by every king of Israel and Judah. And specifically, wisdom by Solomon. Now, Christ himself said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Who could be wiser than Christ? And if he lacked the quality of meekness, then why would he ever listen to any of us? But because he he gave that testimony of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart, what he's saying is, I'm willing to listen, even though I am God, and as, as he said to Abraham, the most intelligent of all. Even though I am God, the most intelligent of all, I'm willing to listen to you and not only listen to you, to learn from you. Now, what, is God, what can God possibly learn that he doesn't already know other than what it's like to be us? And it's a metaphysical question to say, well, you know, God lives outside of time. He already knew it or he doesn't. But the point is God is willing to learn from us. And he was willing to learn from us what it's like to be us. That is the reason why he came to earth, to suffer the things that we suffer. So meekness was the missing attribute in the time of the ancient kings of Israel. And if Solomon had had meekness, in spite of his wisdom, he would have been willing to listen to the prophets that appeared to him and said, why are you abandoning the worship of Jehovah? Instead, he thought, well, this prophet, number one, I'm more prominent, I'm more powerful, I have greater position, I have greater wealth, I have greater adulation. And number two, I am wiser. So why should I listen to this prophet? Nonetheless, if he had, if he'd had that attribute of meekness, then his son's kingdom wouldn't have been divided. Then the nation of Israel would have had a substantially different, significantly different history. And who knows what would have happened? All the good things that could have happened and all the lives that could have been changed. One more, one more point I wanted to make and, and, uh, parallel I wanted to draw, and that is the the parallel of the garment. Now, uh, I, I mentioned the prophet Ahijah shows up and says to, says to Jeroboam, you're going to have this northern kingdom, and he tears off his outer garment and divides it in 12 pieces. And I've been noticing this throughout the scriptures for some time now, but um, I think, I think I've I think I've identified most of the places, if not all, where this kind of thing happens. In other words, where an article of clothing 
is made a symbol of something much larger. And I'll just mention briefly the other times when it happens. And, and if you want, and if you want to email me and talk about it, uh, feel free. If you want to look these up. But but the the symbolism of Joseph's coat is only is only discovered through the Book of Mormon. So when uh, when Moroni shows up with the title of Liberty, he first he rends his coat. And he puts it on a pole and he writes, you know, in memory of our, and our wives, our children, our religion, our country, our freedom. And then he, this is the standard of liberty and he takes it around the country. And when people come together, they also tear their clothing and they say, let us be like this, these, clo- these articles of clothing that are torn. So let us be torn from everything that we hold dear if we're not faithful to this covenant. And at that time, they point out that just like Jacob found that part of Joseph's garment had not been destroyed and part of it had. And they, we learn this bit of history from the Book of Mormon about Old Testament people. We learn that Jacob said, Even so shall a remnant of my son Joseph's seed be preserved, just as this remnant of his garment has been preserved. So similarly, when Saul is turning away, um, or I'm sorry, when, when Saul has sinned and Samuel turns away and Saul reaches out and grabs his, his cloak and it tears and, and uh, he tries to force God to stay on his side. And Samuel turns back around and he says, even as my cloak has rent, so God will take the kingdom from you. And the reason I point all these things out and, and, and here, and we have one more uh, example in this lesson, which was this, this cloak being divided in 12 parts. And, um, the, the most, I think, this isn't clothing, but it is cloth. I think the most dramatic example, perhaps, is at the time of Christ's death, when the veil of the temple, which would protect this, it was obvious, or it, it, was, uh, it was clear, I should say, from the, time, from the way Christ treated the temple, that he still respected the temple as an authorized place of worship. In other words, where his father could dwell. In, in yet other words, that the Shekinah was still there within the temple, that it was still an, a, a place worthy of veneration. And when and upon the death of Christ, the veil of the temple rent from top to bottom. And the veil was constructed in such a way that you had to go in on one side and walk between two veils and then come out on the other. And only then could you see the Holy of Holies. Only one person could make that journey, the high priest. So nobody could see from the outside of the temple through the door, no matter if people left the door open or not, nobody could see into the Holy of Holies. And when that veil was rent, what it meant was the temple is no longer an authorized place. It's it's as if it were never dedicated. I've abandoned it. You've abandoned my house, and so I've abandoned it too. Why do I bring this up? We have today... Um, first of all, I bring it up to say there are, there are very few ordinances that actually have symbolism. I mean, most ordinances of the priesthood today are done by laying on of hands. And that has a symbolism, a minor symbolism of its own that I can discuss perhaps at a later time. But the symbolism of baptism is of death and, and resurrection and of, and of um, the death of sin and sinfulness and of washing and being clean. The symbolism of the sacrament 
we could discuss the symbolism of, and there are ordinances in the temple of washing and anointing. Those are um, of being chosen and being cleansed. Other than that, the, the ordinances of the priesthood don't have a whole lot of symbolism that is obvious to us. And so the, this, this way that garments are treated throughout the spiritual history of Israel is very symbolic, and it's the next best thing. Even though it's not what these Nephites were doing when they tore their garments and they threw them at the feet of Moroni, it wasn't an ordinance of the priesthood. It was a symbol. It was a token of a covenant they were making with God. And it seems like from the way that these interchanges, these exchanges often involve prophets, it seems like God took these covenants very seriously. He honored them as if they were ordinances of the priesthood. And we have a symbol today that is a garment of our covenants. And what, what we learn from this example of Jeroboam receiving a, pro, a promise from the prophet that as your garment has been treated, so will you be treated. If you will respect what I'm telling you, then you will be sustained. If you will trust in God. That, that really is a covenant. And without saying more about what happens inside the temple, there is a, a holy garment that protects us today. And I think that the lesson, even though we, um, I, oh, and there's one I forgot, which is um, obviously the, the ephods, E-P-H-O-D, that the priests wore as they went into the temple, and specifically Aaron, it's described in such great detail how this ephod would be, would be constructed, would be made. Um, so he'd be washed and he'd be anointed, and then this, this ephod would be put on him before he went into the temple or performed any of the ordinances. Right? So we don't have the we don't have the collar, the the black shirt and the white collar of a Catholic priest today. What endowed members of the church have is something that only they can see, something that they keep sacred, because our church doesn't have the Levites of olden time. Everyone could be called to serve in a position of leadership in our church. We have a lay clergy, and that means people who are not paid, who are not professionally, maybe even qualified until the time when the Lord calls them. And so our uniform is one that we carry underneath, and it's a spiritual, like we talked about with, in, the, in the lesson with David, it's, it's and, and we made the parallel between David and the Sermon on the Mount, what God was saying was, what matters is close to the heart. So I guess my final message is, let's honor those, those covenants that we've made, whether or, not we've, whether or not you've been through the temple or not. It's not as important as you recognizing that God has tokens and symbols of his covenants that exist everywhere all around you. And he takes those things very seriously, whether or not you understand that that is a, an eternal covenant and God will never break his word. When the prophet speaks it, those covenants exist and they're binding and God will never walk, walk away from them. What happened to the people of Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam tried to substitute his own strength and his own wisdom for obedience. What he wanted to do was sustain his own power 
keep his house on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. What ended up happening was that the kingdom of Israel was destroyed so utterly that they were wiped off the map and they were erased from history. No one today has any idea where they ended up. They ceased to exist as a people. If you are willing to see in the treatment of God towards his people Israel any kind of parallel to your own life, this has to scare you. Because there could be no worse consequences spiritually. So let us take a, take a hard look inward. What are, the, what are the covenants? What are the promises that are extended to me? And how can I honor them? How can I trust in God's promises and hire minstrels rather than soldiers when things get rough? Be a righteous king over my own soul and govern this temple. Keep my people close to the house of God so that God will establish my house forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.